Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. And joining us as we continue this exploration, I guess it's a good word, into qualitative research methods, uh, kind of getting away from the quote-unquote mainstream psychological methods, is Dr. Maria Espino, who's going to be joining us uh, to talk about focus groups. Yeah, hi. So soon to be doctor. Um, but yes, um, Maria Espino, current, she, her, hers, Aya. I'm currently a fourth year doctoral candidate at Iowa State University. And I do a lot of work with qualitative methodologies, whether it's focus groups, phenomenology, um, semi-structured interviews, things like that. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. When are you, you say soon to be doctor, when will you be doctor? The goal is December 2022. Huzzah! So right, right around the corner. Oh, goals, goals. You, you can do it. <laughs> you're not, you're, you're, are you, are you ABD or you're still just SBD, soon, soon to be doctor? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to go with soon to be doctor, but yes, I'm ABD. I've been right. dissertating forever now, it feels like. So yeah. data collection and analysis is happening right now. So let's hope that I can get it wrapped up by the summer. Ah. Very cool. Well, I wanted to invite you on uh, because we worked together with Sarah Rodriguez, a callback to a previous episode when we had her on um, to talk about education and STEM identity. And for this season, since we are doing qualitative research, I was like, Maria does a ton of focus group work. Like that is her bread and butter in research. So could you kind of give us an introduction to focus groups and kind of what their utility is within the research? Yeah, so focus groups are great. Focus groups is a way to try to get a multiple vo voices at one time, um, primarily used in social sciences, humanities, just to really get the greater aspect of things. I personally consider myself someone who does work inside the critical realm of things. So for me, being able to encompass a larger group of people or being able to get more voices at one time um, just seems right um, to understand and to get depth on social issues, um, different climates, different experiences um, that we want to get and to, to, to understand a little bit further. Uh, the purpose for me for Focus Girls particularly is to really understand a broader sample population to grab more voices, grab either statistically and non-statistically numbers at a time. Um, for me as a qualitative researcher, I like to really understand the different variety of experiences and a focus groups lets me get those varieties at one in one instance, um, particularly so. Yeah, um, utility wise, again, is you could just use it to understand the, the variety of experiences. You can use it to make it a little bit easier to get a lot of people at one time to share, which is really great and useful. Um, one of the things that I really like about focus groups is that if one person starts sharing, more people feel comfortable sharing their experiences and vulnerability. So that's something that's really useful um, to be able to get that information and be able to use it, one, for assessment purposes on programs or um, grants and stuff like that, and two, for research and really understanding to use that information, analyze it, and put it all in the world to be able to further scholarship and knowledge. So I, I almost got roped into a focus group. <laughs> um, and it looks like it, it's, it's evolving to be instead interviews. What would you say is kind of the, um, 
guess in, in the broader sense. I mean, obviously there's the one person versus the group, uh, but kind of what you see is is maybe the, um, I guess, pros and cons of like a focus group compared to the one-on-one interview or like the, the I guess, multi, you know, maybe a multi-person ethnography or something like that. Yeah, so the one-on-one, I'll start with the interviews first. So the one-on-one interview really allows you to, to tailor every question and response, especially if it's a semi-structured interview, mm-hmm. to that person individually to really get in-depth and the information you want to get into that particular experience or that particular person um, and what they are able to provide, whether it's, for example, for me, I do a lot of step identity and sense of belonging and cult- community culture wall stuff, critical stuff like that. So I really want to understand like the upbringings, the understanding of how those intersections, especially in marginalized students, like where they came from, all of those things. It gives me the chance to have that one-on-one privacy and conversation with individuals to further grasp that in that that narrative for them. Um, in a focus group, it's a little harder because um, you're not aggregating everyone equally. Yes, you might have like a, a demographic pool. For example, you're looking at 18-year-olds that are athletes that are interested in the study because of x y and z um so you have a a rounder range and it's harder to get more of that in-depth information when there's multiple people wanting to contribute or the hard part too is like if they don't contribute how to be able to pull that information out of individuals um, by either asking individuals a broader question or something that's not so in-depth um and the pros of focus groups though is that you have more people at one time and you're able to connect with um, the individuals with you as a researcher, but also individuals who have similar similarities um, to come to that researcher. For example, if they came, that the athlete example, they came, they're all athletes, they could get to know each other a little bit more, maybe find that connection to be really see why they came to the research and maybe create connections that way. Um, and even have that as a way to bring out more information from the participants. Um, if you see certain pairs or like, oh, you, let's say one of the focus groups, one of the scenarios was to separate the pairs and have them conversate and then reach out again um, to be able to do that, for them to be able to build their ideas and be able to share out afterward. So that's another thing that's really good about focus groups that you can set up that focus group however you want and however you like to be able to, um, to maximize the information that comes out of that actual focus group. When with one-on-one interviews, if that person isn't trying to open up or doesn't wanna really answer the questions how you want to, it, you're gonna get very limited information from them. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a minute ago, and I see this a lot working on the back end of focus groups, not necessarily like the planning and execution of the data collection, but like what happens after is the collective meaning making starts to emerge. Could you walk us through what that's like and how the participants collectively make meaning out of their experiences? Yeah, I think it also depends on the topic and the range of what you're looking for when it comes to um, focus groups and what the meaning making angle is. That just really popped up like in class when there's a discussion board, someone says, I really agree with this, blah, 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 mentality. And that's kind of what happens in focus groups sometimes. But I think the overall, especially with the work that I do when I look at critical lens um, and I do focus groups, a lot of it focuses on people being vulnerable and being able to be vulnerable in certain spaces, which coming in, it's also part of the the consent form, the consent focus of what I do. I want to make sure individuals know that there might be vulnerable questions and, you know, X, Y, and Z. But once they start asking questions and start being able to say things, 
I want everyone to be able to leave the space being able, some students say it feels like therapy. So being able to say like, um, what the meaning making at the end of it might not be an individual catered thing like it is for, uh, like, for example, a one-on-one interview, but it's something that mattered to them because it brought them in in the first place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. If that kind of answered your question. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, when you said that uh, the participants feel like they just left therapy, there's like this also this like vulnerability with the researcher conducting the interview too. So most of our work is with online surveys. And so we usually only get feedback about how people feel about the survey if they like leave us a nasty comment on Reddit. But with this situation, it's like, if they don't like what you're doing, they can tell you immediately. And you're yes. like immediately uh, accountable to your participants. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that actually speaks to positionality too, in the way that me as a queer um, Mexican-American, dark-skinned Mexican-American woman woman is in, in the space with them, especially because I do a lot of work with Latinx folks, Latina, Latina, Latina individuals, and how that matters for, for students, um, especially if I'm looking at that particular demographics, how they're able to open up or if they're not able to open up. Um, but I also know what that is for other demographics whenever I do enter a focus group in a white space or in a Black space and how my identities may affect the way respondents and um individuals participate in the focus groups mm-hmm. then i touch on I, I guess one of the questions that we have is that you know when we're thinking about kind of the researcher's identity and the participant's identity and then we could have a number of other factors included you did kind of mention um, sensitive questions one of the things that i've been thinking about and kind of discussing with thomas about this potential formerly potential project it's moved on i need to talk to him about it at some point oh, um, no. <laughs> no it's fine it's fine it's it's it's, it's <laughs> moving it's moving in a good direction but away from focus groups so i don't want to go too far into it especially talking about it but, but one of the concerns that we had in this case wasn't that the questions would necessarily be sensitive but the group is a sensitive group um the group is not a group that we want to break any sort of anonymity with mm. and that there's, there was a lot of concerns. Um, and, and so maybe even outside of kind of those rare cases where you're maybe working with a very sensitive population or you're, you're working with very sensitive questions, like even beyond that, um, some of these ethical concerns kind of consistently come up. And I'm, I'm sure in these, these group settings, there's probably compounding it more than we would with like an online survey an online survey just like take the survey oh i've got some questions about stress it might make you a little stressed out but here's here's a resource or here's you can contact us if you need help um but in this case you're kind of getting down in the middle um with the groups themselves and so i'd I'd imagine that there's this several additional layers of kind of ethical uh, concerns and, and discussions that you have to have before going into this. I'll just, I guess, speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and I think that's a very valid question because we do need to pay tribute to vulnerable populations, whether it's children, um, the c- senior citizens, individuals who identify with the LGBT plus community, especially when it's when it talks about racism, violence, white supremacy, things like that, that can be triggers. And for some people have a, everyday experiences with those things. Um, as I mentioned, I am a, I consider myself someone who works in the critical lenses a lot. 
So I do have to constantly think about those things, especially when I, I mentioned I work with Latinx students or Latino, Latina, Latine um, students, um, how family status, immigration status, all of those things do come up, dual citizens, mixed family statuses. It can be triggering for folks, especially if they had that traumatic experience. Um, and I think that's navigating a space where you need to create a brave space, safe space, however you want to term it, where you're able to allow individuals to step out or to feel comfortable if they don't feel comfortable with certain settings, certain questions, not necessarily pry on those questions, but also navigate the room where if there is a student or an, a participant who feels uncomfortable or needs to be um, alleviated as a researcher in my position, I'm a, I need to move on the, to a different question or to use a response that someone else did to be able to cater a new question. Um, to navigate that space better for the privacy, for the safety, for the comfortability of the participants in that setting. Um, a lot of the vulnerable populations that um, that I've mentioned for me personally, I would rather do a one-on-one -on -one interview um, because it feels more suited, especially if I'm going to be talking about their vulnerabilities that can come up and may trigger where I can control a setting on a one-on-one -on -one setting instead of a group with like five people or et cetera. Um, but also the beauty of focus groups, if you do are, are doing them with these vulnerable populations, is being able to, to have the participants get to know each other prior than to coming in. If it's not something that necessarily that um, you need complete confidentiality, obviously RRB, the Institutional Review Board is a thing. So right. obviously catering the, 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 the study how it needs to be. But if, for example, you're doing a focus group Friday, maybe send an email the week before or the Monday before and saying, hi, these individuals are coming in. They, they're interested in participating in this focus group. Here's a little bit about them. If they're willing to share a little blurb or there's a quick bio or something, just so individuals have that rapport building prior to coming into a space where they can feel that they have some type of connection. Um, that's just something that I could think of at the top of my head that can probably create um, a better ethic, a better way of navigating those ethical concerns prior to the actual focus group that may alleviate stress or vulnerabilities in the actual group. I, uh, this is kind of a curveball, but do you ever have any worries about the participants, not necessarily like attacking themselves, but do you have like tension that arises between participants that maybe not necessarily spurred by the researchers question themselves, but through that discussion, it gets to become red flaggy? Um, I personally haven't experienced that myself, but I can kind of think of that, how I've experienced it in the classroom when I was teaching, mm. um, not necessarily like a focus group, but kind of, if you think about it, it's a bunch of peers that are choosing to take this class. And I'm just thinking particularly when I, the class I was teaching focused on race and, and gender, especially the topic I was talking about was the intersections. And this was all during the Trump administration. So all of those things, especially in a class that focuses on a marginalized identity, um, having to navigate how to de-escalate a situation is obviously like, oh, that's a different way of viewing things. And you two have two different ways of viewing things. How can we find a, a way for both sides to learn from that situation instead of seeing it? In this case, it was in a classroom setting, but if I saw that in a focus group, seeing it as a researcher, but seeing it as two different viewpoints that will never understand each other or they won't will never see eye to eye but how can we make meaning of this moving forward for both sides to take something out of it mm -hmm. 
one of the things that I guess I was thinking of, and, and maybe you can, I guess, touch on this as maybe a little little piece of the next question we have on our list um, with like actually running. So, so typically if you're, if you're running a study like that, like how do you, I guess, maintain that, that level of anonymity? So, you know, if you've got someone from, let's say a marginalized or a sensitive group, and let's say you're in a state where it's not necessarily the best thing to be a member of that group, you know, you, you, you have that increased chance of pushback. Um, or even, even if we're just talking about, um, you know, a group that, that may have additional stigma put upon them. Um, you know, so we could say, you know, an individual with, with a psychological illness, um, and that diagnosis could come with some stigma. Um, but they're part of this larger focus group. Um, how does that, I guess, sort of work on the actual method side? Like when you're actually running the study, um, what are, what are, I guess, some, some tips to try to help kind of navigate some of those ethical concerns with, with like anonymity or, you know, maybe if they say something, <laughs> Now everyone knows because everyone in the group also knows that information. Yeah. So for me, first and foremost, obviously, is I definitely would have a conversation with individuals with pseudonyms right away from the get-go. So I believe in getting like a nameplate with their pseudonym on it. So necessarily when they come into the setting, it'd be introducing themselves with their pseudonym. So um, moving forward from that, obviously, they're going to, if they're sharing things about their hometown or their experiences, they're going to be mentioning places or things like that. Nice. So obviously, within the group, there's going to be some type of lack of anonymity or lack of confidentiality when it comes to the group setting. But when you're, you're taking that information outside of the group, automatically making sure that you have ideas or backups of what you're going to renaming the state, what you're going to be renaming the institutions, what are you going to be renaming um, for example, a family member, if they talk about cousins, this and this, are you going to just do family members or are you going to do like immediate family, extended family? How are you going to go about that to keep the anonymity? Wow, that was rough. Um, in, in check. Um, but when it comes to individuals, I'm just thinking, for example, we're doing a mental health one and myself, I have anxiety. So for me, like that, at some point, my anxiety starts acting up and I just start oversharing. <laughs> How do we control that in a, in, a, in a focus group setting? Make sure you have aspects, especially in a mental health uh, um, research study, like stress balls or something to be able to intertwine um, that you know that our research really help these, this, this population of people. For example, for me, coloring, stickers, and stress balls are the three things that really help me recenter right away. It might not look like I'm paying attention, but I really am. It's just, I need to be doing something. Um, to get me recensored. So just thinking about different ways of the population that you're working with and how you can alleviate that pressure for them individually while still being able to get the information that you need for your study. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to like balance the group pressure because it needs to be a little bit so that way they feel compelled to share, but mm -hmm. not so much that they feel like they're on the spot. Yes, definitely. And I think also for me, I'm really big on the classroom environment. So I'm really big on environment. And depending on how I want individuals to, to respond, do I want to invite individuals into an auditorium which has ro seated roles in a screen, or do I want to invite them to a lounge where I could have bean bags and like sit on the floor? For example, I'm sitting on the floor now. Um, that makes me more comfortable to be able to share and not feel that I'm in a rigid setting. 
um, to be able to talk about something I'm passionate about. For example, if I was in my office, I would feel like I'm writing and doing researchy and like having to be X, Y, and Z. When to me, this is more of a conversation about information that I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there's been, and this kind of goes into the question about innovation, um, but the focus group project I worked on utilized Zoom to mm-hmm. bring people from across the country together what kind of environment does that set for a focus group as opposed to a lounge, for example? I feel like that would be a little disjointed. Yeah, so I am currently on a group that does site visits and we have to do them via Zoom. So that within itself shows a little bit about the diversity or the way that the new era now post, in quotes, post COVID, is so for example having multiple people on a call being able to talk to people and understanding their experiences like for example in site visits i think yes it's helps with getting diversity of thought with different people around the nation or around the world so i think that is a really neat thing um but just like any other platform or like any other thing for me it's really hard as a person, as a researcher and someone with my different intersections and my mental um, wellness and, and mental illnesses and things like that, I love being in person to connect with the person in person. Like there's something about being in the same room, being able to give a hug at the end, which is also part of my culture, like that that builds rapport and builds confidence for people to really be, feel at home and feel connected, which I feel sometimes can get lost with virtual settings. Um, and I think for innovation purposes and just bringing us into this new time of what Zoom and as, as students call it Zoom University the last couple of years, like what this looks like. Um, and in the research setting, like it does provide great insight with different people all around the nation, around the world that can actually partake in these in these studies. So I think for focus groups in particularly, I think it's a great thing. Um, but as an individual in my personal practice, I would prefer to do it in person um, just because I feel like it's just such an enriching culture that you do in person. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like I see myself deviating a little bit and really enjoying the virtual setting because of how you're able to meet people from different, for example, us on the call right now, like we're completely <laughs> from different areas, you know, like I'm currently in the state of Iowa where I'm normally in Wisconsin and this would have never been able to happen in person unless I flew mm-hmm. to you or you you all came to me. And that just shows like, also like financially and thinking about my intersections as a first gen low income person. Like what that would have been- money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would have been financially in uh, like unavailable, but also understanding that some individuals, some folks do not have access to technology and that thing. So also thinking about those different um, aspects as a critical scholar, these are things that, pop up when I think about any studies that I'm conducting, especially like with focus groups, like some people might not have access to Wi-Fi or things like that. So just to talk a little bit, broad range of things that come to my head when I think of innovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that might be, it might be your next study, this sort of quote unquote post COVID. Do you like the online? Do you like that? That's the huge, you know, it's going to be the next big debate that universities are having. Like we got to get back in person, but also we want to keep doing online classes. Um, and then a lot of those questions, I, I was was part of some of those discussions, at least at like some of the upper levels on things like students needing technology. So yeah. we started moving online, a lot of concerns with our students who are on reservations or yeah. students from low income 
families who don't have, didn't have any technology. So how do we deal with that? How do we, we help mm -hmm. and assist them uh, effectively? And these are big, important questions that we should be doing focus groups about. The future. Yeah, like it's important, equitable, justable, mm -hmm. like, if we expect these students and honestly, as a first gen for me personally, I'm thinking of my personal experience. I went to college and I didn't even have a laptop. So in thinking I went to college, not even 10 years ago, like, or about 10 years ago, well, I'm about to age myself, but thinking about that, like what, what access one, what access do students and like participants or community members, especially if we're looking at vulnerable populations have access to these things, how accessible are they if they're individuals who have um, people with disabilities or have um, just maneuvering issues like when it comes to like touching, typing on a keyboard, being able to speak to a camera, if there's no closed captioning, how all of these things take into effect for individuals. Um, and for me, it's like, I can't be on a computer too long. I have really sensitive eyes. So, and all my work is on a computer. So how does that, you know, like, how does that work for me? It doesn't, but I make it work. Um, yeah. So these are just all things that as we're moving and progressing technologically as a society, there are also ways that we're hindering populations and making the gaps larger. Um, what is the, we think about the digital divide, we think about the students' economic status and what that gap is doing for those individuals, et cetera. Although I don't like to think in the non-asset-based ideologies, but these are things that we have to think about in order to create that equitable and just communities that we want to have and well-rounded people of the world as, mm -hmm. as we like to think that we are. Mm -hmm. And the quality of those resources, because like we're in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico and at any moment now, our call could drop. Yeah. <laughs> As it did with one of our last interviews. Roll of the dice. Um, it really is. Every time I'm like, oop, it's getting slow. Well, we're going down. Thanks, rural New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. And rural and, students are such a big thing, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is, we've got it better than some people do. You know, if you're you're 10 miles outside of town, <laughs> good luck. You, you're even worse off. Um, but yeah, these they seem to be the kind of similar questions. There seems to be this, you know, kind of tapping into your, your research on, on how or your, your interest and in, in how a lot of these things intersect is, is that the kind of the future of focus group research is going to be housed in a lot of these questions about things like internet as a right and, um, or as a, a utility, you know, mm -hmm. like a, a broader utility service or, you know, making sure that, that people have that, that access to technology because things are moving more and more. Um, you know, needing a smartphone, needing a laptop, needing something to do work on to access the internet with. And then that that's going to both broaden, it seems, focus group research, but also make it really difficult, maybe even more difficult in some cases to, to access certain, um, certain groups. Yeah, certain populations, certain questions you want to ask to be able to actually have them answered, et cetera. Yeah, no, definitely. Could we move back a little bit and walk us through how you plan out and run a focus group? Because I'm having a hard time imagining what the researcher is doing within the space and how do you like set everything up ahead of time to make sure it goes smoothly without maybe being too controlling? Yes. Yeah, so definitely. So for me, first and foremost, what I like to do is um, have name tags planned out, make sure I have name tags, make sure I either have them printed out so individuals have already given me the information prior 
or at the day of have like Sharpies and that they're available for individuals to do their name tag. So they have their pseudonym um, and they could check in with me to make sure that I can remind them what their pseudonym was or what they decided or if they made me pick it, et cetera. Um, when the actual environment of, of focus groups, um, I think of, so I started doing focus groups in my undergrad experience. So that's kind of a lot of where I'm, um, I'm thinking of is like the progression of what I've done, a combination of all the things that I'm like, oh, this worked best, this didn't. Um, so that also in a classroom, I like to put like a PowerPoint slide or something just to kind of reiterate what the, the purpose of the study was and provide closed captioning because the computers now can, once um, you have a PowerPoint slide up and you provide closed captioning options, it reads it on the bottom. So individuals who need to see it instead, or like if you talk too fast, like I do, <laughs> be able to, to write it out for you. Um, I personally do not like to do seated like pods or anything like that. I prefer to move all the tables out and just create a big circle. Um, hopefully the chairs could roll. If not, we have to kind of carry them whenever we want to do like smaller groups and stuff like that. Um, but I really treat it as a seminar. So where I'm walking around sitting with individuals um, making it feel that the, the the space and the conversation is our space. It's a it's not necessarily me running it. It's me being in there with them and creating a community with them. So when you see when individuals are coming, I let them pick wherever they want to sit. Um, I always say like if you want to sit on the ground, if you're more comfortable, feel free just to create that. Most people tend to sit on chairs because they think it's weird to sit on the ground. Teach his own. I prefer the ground. <laughs> um, but and just providing that space where. One, I have, yeah, it's a research study, but also opening up by letting them know, like, this is a space that's going to be for us. I am not the knower of all information. This is a space where we're creating knowledge together. This is somewhere where I hope that, one, what, what we learn about each other can can stay here, but also the experience the experiences that we learn from each other can stay here. But the things that you want to learn and develop within yourselves, you can take that with you, but try to leave the, the, the information or the people that you learn that information from an anonymous as much as you can, especially because a lot of the work that I do, we do need pseudonyms and all of that stuff because of vulnerable populations, et cetera. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I like to navigate the room as a whole. I like to sit in with people. I like to make sure I introduce myself. And if it's a few group, for example, most of the focus groups that I like to do are under 10 because that's just a smaller niche. It's a, it's a more personable way. I start introducing individuals with their pseudonyms as soon as they start coming in so they can start chit-chatting, having fun facts, things, et cetera, just so I can, they can start building their rapport prior to the actual questions and things like that. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, I like having just overall like a synopsis of what the study is on the PowerPoint, the rest of the questions. For me, they're semi-structured, so I either have them on my phone or on an iPad or something where I can reference them I, or a piece of paper. I'm a big paper person, if you see me, <laughs> I love paper. Um, and just to have them as a reference, because I like to do semi, semi-structured where it gives me the flexibility to ask questions to cater to the bigger group, but there is some similarities or some differences um, to further understand that, that, that space. Um, and by closing out and navigating that space, I like to always thank them. Um, and I like to individually thank them on their way out. Um, and if they let me like give a hug, you know, and then just always let them know that thank you for participating. If you need anything, you have my contact information. And then follow up with an email to make sure that they know and that, that this information is ours. And just in case for member checking purposes or um, follow up purposes, like today I had an interview, I was a one-on-one -on -one interview with a participant for my dissertation. Like I want to always make sure that they know, 
yes, I am here gathering your stories and we're gonna, I'm, I'm using your narrative, but I wanna make sure that you are in control of this narrative and how it's used at all purposes, because this is your story and I don't wanna misinterpret that, um, which is something that I pretty much do for every for the focus groups to, to make sure that the individuals know that, yes, as a collective, we created this knowledge, but you are in control of this knowledge. This is your, your knowledge base, your creation. How can we make this work together and make sure that everyone is comfortable with what is being created from it? Yeah, it's kind of navigating environment slash data collection <laughs> a little bit into that. That yeah, sounds super complex. In terms of uh, recording the data, do you just do a audio recording? Do you take notes throughout the whole thing? Do you have a video recording? What's the data tech collection end of this? Yeah, so far I've done only audio and... <laughs> So audio notes and memos type of thing. So I would, um, what I like to do, I don't like to video record just because I feel like that makes people know that their faces are being connected to their audio and it more likely doesn't allow them to be as talk as freely. Um, that's just my assumption on things. And it's just how I know as me as a participant, I wouldn't want my face recorded. Just, I just, I don't know. I just feel like that's how people would feel. Um, and I do actively take notes, whether it's walking around or going on my phone. I tend to have a notebook for the most part, just to take notes. And then right after a session, I like scratch, make a big line. And just right after, how did I, like a journal entry, how did I feel? How did I feel that individuals, like a debrief um, on a quick memo? For example, I'm thinking of this one instance when I was towards the end of my undergraduate career into like my master's career, um, when I was doing... Inner, it was like a small focus group with administrators. Um, and right afterwards, I, I remember writing down like all of these individuals were dressed up in professional, traditional professional attire, like slacks. And uh, two of them were women. One of them was a male, a man. Um, and they were just all in like, like complete, like um, what's that called? A suit, a suit, a top and pants. And the women were in heels and the men were in um, black shoes. I don't know why I remember this so vividly. Um, and to me, it just stood out because I'm like, most interviews are, are aspects that I've had when it comes, even if it was administrators, they came more comfortable. But this, this focus group, they came very um, traditional professional attire. And I just questioned like, why were they dressed like that? If we were in a different, if we were in like a small lounge um, in, a, in a building. Um, I don't even remember what building it was in, but it was just really fascinating when the previous um, interviews or focus groups that I had, they were dressed more casually than that stood out to me. And I remember writing down, oh, they were wearing this, this, and this, and their answers seemed very direct. And, um, and later on, I came to find out they were administrators, but they were more senior administrators. So I figured maybe they were running, they were at an important meeting or a board meeting or something. But also that also made sense why their answer seemed so much shorter and not in vague <laughs> when it came to at the time where we were researching. Um, what was it? Was that cyberbullying? Honestly, I don't remember what's what what um what project that was on. I was on like four different projects at that time, three different projects. So I was kind of everywhere. I want to think it was cyberbullying. though. I'm gonna go with that. Um, and it was just really fascinating. To, to, to see one, why they were one that the dress stood out to me and how I had to write that in my memo right away 
and how that influenced the way I was when I heard the audio again, how that influenced the way I saw how they were responding to things. So that was just a quick scenario <laughs> memory. That's crazy. No, I would imagine that would make the room more stiff if everyone was <laughs> like, if they like dressed like stiff. I mean, yeah, well, mind you, I was in a dress, like really comfortable right. with pops or like the gladiator sandals. So to me, I felt like I was underdressed to an interview that I was conducting. <laughs> <laughs> that was just really, it was really, inter- it was an interesting experience. And honestly, I was very young too. So for me, it's like, it was one of those experiences where I'm like, well, is this imposter syndrome that I'm feeling? Or is this now looking back? Was it imposter syndrome mm-hmm. or was it really just the context in which the air, the climate that I was, was in? Um yeah it, it, it sounds too that like even just having them all in suits may have changed their behavior as well and mm-hmm. that they're giving you that that sort of legal response that's short to the point as opposed to something a little more relaxed um yeah and that kind of made me realize like the dynamics within the group maybe they like that's something i didn't know maybe they had some tension or something in there so yeah maybe they're trying to one-up each other i don't know <laughs> that's if you pulled all pull all upper administration at any university into a room together it's going to be tense even if they (laughs) get along for the most part yeah good old legal responses (laughs) (laughs) i want i want to ask with with this this kind of same same line of question of of not not how to run how not to run a focus group like with with so much experience there's always something we come across in our own research where we're like i will never do this again this was a mistake um, I need to fix this and make sure it's fixed every time. What's something we should not do if we want to run a focus group? Ooh, Ooh. I want to say, honestly, I have had the least success with rigid questions when it came to questions that were too specific, if that makes sense, because they're so specific to the point that individuals feel that they don't have a right answer if that makes mm-hmm. sense you want to make sure that the questions are broad or are, are not too broad where any answer can fit it but you need to find that good medium of yes it's like an and and but type of situation how I think about it was research questions where you want you want a broad enough question to be able to to, to be able to grasp the larger audience so more than one person would respond but also not specific enough where you have to rely on that one person because that's what kind of happened to me in my previous is like I had a question particularly um I think it was a group of it was three women and a man and then the question was talking about masculinity and like machismo and kind of you know the dynamics ended up all the women are able to share but the man felt like isolated and attacked and we didn't want to create that dynamic so moving forward, figuring out a way to diversify the pool of participants or and or rewording the question to be a, a more, because it's not their fault, but it's also not his fault. That goes into my critical thought of like, you know, he's uncomfortable because, you know, he does things that are to deal with machista Matisse, Matisse ideologies, but also that kind of zoned him out of the rest of the questions and wanting to participate moving forward. So mm-hmm. kind of figuring that out too. So that's just kind of an example I'm thinking that moving forward. Um, I'm huge on environment. So for me, obviously tables and just having a rigid space that doesn't feel comfortable 
if it feels like you're coming into a conference room, people might not want to share so much. Um, so thinking about how and what you want to get out of it um, when it comes to actual literal physical space and how individuals are able to interact with each other in those spaces. So obviously, a, a preferably a room that doesn't have things glued to the ground to be able to move around in, excuse me, to build those connections. Um, focus groups, let's see what else. Do you know of any research, I guess, just to sidetrack and ramble a little bit, do you know of any research that uh, that looks at like green spaces or being like outdoors versus inside with something like a focus group? Like just think. I haven't, that? I haven't, but I personally, well, I'm in the Midwest, so it's kind of hard to pick a day to go out <laughs> <laughs> if it's not going to rain or snow, <laughs> um, especially I tend to do most of my studies in the winter times. I don't know why it's just when my juices are flowing. I blame being a February child, um, but I personally have not looked into that. And I think that's something that it's interesting with the innovation question, like, how does that work when we're moving towards technology, when hey, we're moving away from being in nature and being... You're on your laptop, but outside. <laughs> that would be interesting. We, 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 had, we had a thesis student, uh, because of COVID, have to shift kind of in a, a quasi-environmental therapy session to, to Zoom. And so would Zoom, but would be outside and the client would be outside while they were doing it and showed some promise, but like it was restrained from by tech too. So does mm -hmm. it cut some of that down? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, that's, that's so fascinating. I would actually like to see what the difference would be for that. But that gave me more ideas to think about. Like I didn't even think about that, which is fascinating as someone who has done one-on-one -on -one interviews, who's done focus group, who's done a lot of Zoom stuff, like, I never even thought about being outside and what that can do to people, especially with vitamin D and how that influences the way we 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 run around in the world. So that's fascinating. Something to think about. Is that our next study, Maria? Maybe. <laughs> One of the tell Sarah about that. I was like, let's talk to Sarah. I'm sure she'd be down. I'll get you in touch with that with that thesis or that that uh, former grad student of ours. Yeah, I would definitely love to read that. <laughs> I think she might be interested in running. <laughs> there we go right on i have a quick question is there do you give your questions to your focus group members ahead of time or do you spring it on them in the room so i think it depends on the study um okay for me for example for my dissertation right now they're one-on-one -on -one interviews i give the students the interview questions beforehand um, just because it's my dissertation and I want to make sure I have good data. Right. <laughs> um, but when it comes to something that isn't focused on vulnerable populations or anything like that, that will trigger, or do I feel that the questions aren't as triggering? I don't, I'd rather do it in the, in the moment, but also when I don't, I like to have time for individuals to process. So I either do like small groups as well, um, to make sure that they have time to process them together. Um, and that when I do that, it's really hard to get good data with like being able to hear everyone since everyone is talking at once, yeah. but also being able to have the time to, for them to share out. That's where the data really comes in because they create like an aggregate, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like we as a group thought this and being able to write down all oh, this team and this team are the one that mentioned this. So that's how I kind of, that's where the memos and the note-taking really benefits the, the focus groups. Um, which I guess goes back to like the pros and cons of focus groups as well. Like it's hard sometimes when some people 
talk over each other and like navigating that time. That's one of the pros and cons of, of focus groups, but it's pretty great. I, I like them. Um, and I think just kind of going back to that, it's like if they're given the questions beforehand, some people have more to say than others. Um, but if you're giving them that same time there, it's giving everyone the same amount of time to process them to be able to respond. So mm-hmm. depends on what you're looking at, because some people might be looking at the response rates of individuals who are looking at X, Y, and Z questions, you know? So right. I think it also depends on how you're, how, what you, what you want to get out of that study. Um, then they could be like, oh, each person was given the question and was able to process it for a minute. This were the responses, thinking about it more rigidly. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a very chaotic way to collect data. <laughs> Yeah. It's like all of the data all at once at you now, like catch yeah. as much as you can. Yeah. And there's a team that, that I'm on currently that did focus groups as a pilot for the questions. And now we refine the questions and now we're doing one-on-one interviews. So ah. that's also something that can benefit. And I think honestly, for me, for this team, um, we're particularly looking at community college students on the pipeline to grad school. Um, and I think that worked out very well because you're able to see how the questions function with everyone at one time and being able to see what's really important. And if you want to follow up with those individuals or anything, you have the one-on-one, one-on-one questions, but mm-hmm. also have been able to pilot the questions originally with them. Um, that kind of works out too. Mm. That's so interesting. Cause my quanti brain usually thinks of like, you start with like your case study or your one-on-one interviews, and then you move to focus groups and then you do your big survey, but the focus group is like bi-directional in that case. Yeah. And that's so the, cool. Yeah. The great thing about qualitative studies is, you know, you can pick one, two, three, you know, like however mm-hmm. else you want to do it. And that also goes with the frameworks you choose. Like if you're picking, I currently, we, I've for some reason have always been using two, two to three frameworks at this point. I need to chill out. Um, and really realizing either using them for analysis purposes of, of interviews or of focus groups, but also like the beauty of focus groups is just being able to get such rich information at one point from so many different people. And if you're interested in following up or wanting to know more, there's always that opportunity if you want to extend it to one-on-one interviews or if you want to do another research group and just switch up the research group component, the the participants, Mm -hmm. there's also that opportunity. So, and then doing like a comparative study or something. Just things I'm just thinking That's super cool, yeah. (laughs) Super cool, but sounds super a lot of work going through and data and the focus groups. Um, but yeah. Man. Well, I think I have exhausted my questions. Daniel, do you have anything else or should we move on? I guess because we're nearing an hour. We should. We, we are should, nearing an hour. We should move on because we might have some rambling to do uh, with our bias of the week. Huzzah. So I, I put together a bias from this big old list of biases that we have. Um, and lately, at least with, with the qualitative discussions that we've been having, I, I think I've been trying to find biases that the methodology of the week can be used to help get rid of. And I think I found a good one for this week. This week's bias is the curse of knowledge. Mm. And so coined by Robin Hogarth, uh, it's it's Kammerer, C-A-M-E-R-E-R, et al., 1989, when better informed people find it extremely difficult to think about problems from the perspective of less informed people. 
And it just mm-hmm. seems to me that a focus group is a great way to squash this, <laughs> this bias because you get to know and you get those additional perspectives and you get to put yourself as a researcher um, into these, these groups and communities a lot more in depth than we would have sitting atop our ivory towers doing quantitative survey analysis. <laughs> <laughs> No, absolutely. I think that goes back to the uh, positionality you talked about at the beginning, at the top is like knowing who you are, knowing who your participants are, and then being in a very like purpose-filled environment to do your data collection really eliminates a lot of uh, preconceptions that you may have going in. So it is helpful to have big open-ended questions that anybody can fill because you don't know what you're going to get when the data gets exploded at you. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about like, and I think this is where it goes where when positionality isn't stated in like scholarship and things like that, I think I'm like, well, did you think about how everything you experience affects the way you're seeing this? No, maybe, maybe. And I'm just thinking of like, as we're moving up the ivory tower, this higher education, this pillar, you know, regardless, sometimes that view, that binder gets put on and we don't realize it until someone calls us out on it. Um I'm just reflecting out loud and thinking about, yeah, that's, that can happen. I've gotten my share of angry email that made no sense, but I've also gotten my share of angry email that was like, you didn't think about this. And I go, oh, oops. Um, we're going to fix that for next time. Uh, because no, they're right. They're absolutely right. And sometimes my students look at me like I'm weird when I'm like, you have to communicate with the people that you're doing research with because they're going to give you ideas and insights that you will not have thought of (laughs) even if you're connected to them in some way yeah and i'm just thinking about like this conversation we're having like yeah i've done a lot of focus groups but i'm sure that there's some people who are doing innovative things with focus groups that i haven't even thought of or for example thinking of like two-way focus groups and things like that like how individuals are currently navigating this and they're like oh there's just things that maybe I didn't mention on the top of my head. And that's just something that I didn't, wasn't in the forefront of for me. So yeah, there's things that you, yeah, you're knowledgeable about, but there's always something more that you can learn. Um, at least the way I think about it, but yeah, there's some people who are just like, oh yeah, this is, you know, you, you know, this stuff and it comes easy to you. Like focus groups and qualitative research comes really easy to me, but there's also someone who has never done it. doesn't know how to do a literature review. Doesn't know how to create a research question in qualitative work. And I can overlook those things when writing up a focus group, potential uh, potential focus group um, project, et cetera. So I need to start communicating with those people because I'm I'm very survey brained when it comes to my research, <laughs> and it is really hard sometimes to be like, all right, how how do I even move past? Like I've I've collected data. What do I do that? What do I do with this? It's not numbers. I don't know. And, so and I'm the opposite. I need to learn. <laughs> I need to learn from y'all how to use the quant side because the qual, I'm like, I got this quant. I need every help I can get. <laughs> we just need to keep working together. Collaboration. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that this that's why I've loved this season because it's kind of been a reality check slash like self-esteem slasher because we've been able to like talk about so many different like qual methodologies and approaches and stuff like that. We pretty much got read in our, I guess, the episode that just came out. 
or will come out this week, but will be already out with the autoethnographies. Mm-hmm. Um, and how to do it like interspecies, how to do it with communities, like how it's like a reflexive practice as you do quant research. And I'm like, shoot, these are all really good points and I should be doing all of them. <laughs> yes, autoethnography is fascinating. I am so bad at doing things about myself with myself that I need to practice auto, like doing autoethnographic. I think that's the word. Autoethnographic? Yeah. I think I feel like that's how it would be conjugated. Um, if not, it's okay. I, I tried. Um, <laughs> it's all right how that work works. Like I, I am very reflective when it comes to positionality, but to the level of autoethnography or ethnographic work with myself, I need to get there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, that's, that is what I learned. Even to the point where like we had uh, Dr. Gillespie come on who does interspecies stuff and decentering humans within like natural environments. And she was like, let's talk about how weird roads are. Like they killed the animals when they were put in and they're still killing animals today. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. Circle of life (laughs) really messed up way. (laughs) Fascinating. Didn't think about that. But it it has been something new every week and it has been great. Uh, It's kept that, that, that joy of learning alive. The freshness. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. I'm glad I'm able to contribute at least a little bit. Absolutely. Thank oh. you so much for coming. Yeah. So I, I guess with that, we'll we'll bid our listeners farewell. Goodbye. Everybody. Goodbye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs>